Hey, everybody, I found a great review. I love this. Absolutely amazing. Exclamation point five stars from B. Voss. The whole series has been great, but episode eight on sensuality, sexuality, and deconstruction was absolutely amazing. I sat and thought about so much of it for hours after. I'm going to have to go listen to that one. I know. I was like, what was on episode eight? (laughs) You guys, we so appreciate it when you leave reviews specifically and rate the show. It really helps other people to discover this content. Thanks so much. So I heard you mention last night the history of genitalia or genitalia history. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was insatiably curious and noted to myself, man, I hope we do an episode where she does this. That's weird. I had the exact opposite (laughs) reaction. Man, I hope that's not an episode. (laughs) But it is. Mm -hmm. I can't wait. Lead the way. From Milieu Media Group, this is Fun Parts. An exploration of sexuality and spirituality. For anyone who's curious or convinced, there must be more. With your hosts, Becky Patton, Latifa Alatas, Ashley Lusink, Steve Weens, and me, Luke Bronner. I want to do a disclaimer before we start this. The reality is I'm going to use real terminology, and I'm going to do that in a way that I want to be respectful to the body, both the male body and the female body. And I have a funny way of sharing that. We had a dog that liked to hump new people who came into our house. Perfect. <laughs> it was like the most embarrassing thing. But our kids were little, and they would ask, what is the dog doing? And I would say, well, honey, it's kind of humping. But mommy, he gets this hard rock down there. And what is that? What is that? And I said, well, that's his penis. That's his penis. And she was like fascinated with that word. So like we would go in the grocery store. Does that man have a penis? Does that, does she have a penis? And I was like, honey, do you want some more peanuts? You know, I was trying everything to try and, you know, kind of control this, whatever I'd unleashed. So I had a family member come through my door. It was my sister who came through with this guy she was dating. And new guy in the house. Mm. Where does the dog go? And one of my kids came up and said, it's okay. It's just his penis. He won't hurt you. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and I watched, I mean, my, to my, to this man's horror, you know, this is the first time coming in my house. I love that you're just watching too. That's, yeah. And, oh, this, yeah. and I'm like, oh, I'm in shock one, but here's my little, maybe four or five year old speaking to this person that she's never met before and just comforting him. It's okay. It's okay. It's just his penis. It won't hurt you. And it was so natural. And so anyway, so I tell that story for the purpose of, I think it's really important that we use real terminology Mm -hmm. for understanding and recognize that if we feel uncomfortable with it, that's okay too. Because part of it is how we've had it presented to us has actually registered things in our body. So like if I use the terminology, did you, what happened when you got the talk when you were younger? Did any of you guys get the talk from your parents? Nope. Youth group. I did. You did? Mm-hmm. Was it good? It was funny. I was asking, I didn't understand how the penis went into the vagina. That mm-hmm. was my big mystery. And so my dad said, well, he was very, it was great. Actually. He said it gets hard. And my association with an erection as a little boy was a tree trunk. 
is when my penis became like mm-hmm. a tree trunk. So I said, really you mean like a tree trunk, dad? He goes, well, yeah, sure. He, you know, and So he was able to identify mm-hmm. with terminology that was appropriate for mm-hmm. you and understanding. Yeah. So, I mean, in we didn't have the talk later when mm-hmm. I needed it, really. Mm-hmm. But my parents actually were always really good at using real language. Mm-hmm. And they just, yeah, it was probably a timing issue. It was way too young. Yeah. But but it was helpful. Well, and I think, but what we know is in the teenage years, and there was this huge movement where, you know, you take the child away and you make a really special weekend and you have this little dialogue you go through and everything like that. What we know from a lot of those stories as I've over the years done this is people like were so excited to get the time alone with the parent. Mm -hmm. And then the moment they realized what it is, is like they shut down and they missed, they couldn't hear what was being said because they felt like it was a bait and switch Mm. that the only way they got that time away was because of the topic. And they were actually so hungry for the relationship Mm. and the being seen and singled out and things like that. So what we know is that if we are uncomfortable talking about something, we put off what is called prolactin. And prolactin is something that actually is trying to protect us. Like when somebody gets frenzy. When you say put off prolactin, you mean it's like an adrenaline It's thing, an right? adrenaline it's thing. It's a it's hormone. A chemical. It's, actually, it's, it's a, a hormone. chemical okay. that actually comes off of us and it's looking for more prolactin. So if we're uncomfortable talking about something, what happens is it's going to show up to the person we're talking to. And so the reality is, is it's going to find their prolactin and suddenly you have this big smoke screen of prolactin that you're not able to actually hear through because you're actually trying to recover from. So as we're talking about this and we're using real terminology, and thank you, Steve, for actually doing that first, the reality is it may make you feel uncomfortable. Can you notice that? And can you be aware of it? And what we know is that if we can acknowledge our discomfort, like, okay, this is kind of hard for me. It lowers our prolactin. Interesting. So I just want to say there are places that that's a really important thing for us to have, and I want us to be body aware. So as we engage in this, and we're going to talk a little bit about genitalia history and experience with that, I think it's really important that we notice what our body actually is experiencing in this. Mm. Because if we've had absolutely no talk kind of growing up, and we don't even use those terminology. I mean, we had all kinds of funny names when I was growing up. I couldn't figure out what a Twinkie was for ages. I didn't know. I That's what I was told a penis was, was a, a Twinkie. Twinkie. And I liked eating Twinkies. And no. I was like so confused. I couldn't, Amazing. I couldn't, I mean, I was like a Twinkie, you know, and the, anyway, so I'm just saying that I think that we have to recognize where we've come from, where we're at, and where is it that we actually want to go with that. Yeah. I keep picturing the Charlie Brown cartoon, the pigsty the kid pigsty mm-hmm. yeah i feel like that's me but that's prolactin like it's just like, <laughs> I have this like protective cloud all the mm-hmm. time and mm-hmm. i mean it actually seriously like mm-hmm. i i'm always uncomfortable with it but what i've been aware of just since we've started recording the show and i'll make little comments and it's you know we joke around a lot about how squirmy i get but it's also like what i realize is how i'm sort of imposing my discomfort on other people and it, it makes me think of my own marriage it makes me think of like mm-hmm. the things that my wife sort of knows she can't talk to me about mm. because she knows I'm not comfortable with it or that I'm just going to get tensed up or whatever. And mm. the tendency for people who are repressed or inhibited in the ways that I am to impose that on others and how wrong that is. I don't want to do that. I'm saying this to sort of acknowledge what you just said, 
this is difficult for me. This is actually really uncomfortable for mm-hmm. me. And I want to own that in a way that says, but I'm willing to like, I'll walk through it. I it's, don't want anyone not, else to sort of bend to that. It's you not know? wrong of you. I just want to say like, your experience is your experience. What I mean is it's wrong. You know, there's a, I'm learning this in another show that I produce called The Relay where mm. it's all about building a more racially equitable society. Right. And I'm sort of constantly running into my own whiteness in that show. I see. And the ways that white men have a tendency to sort of impose their discomfort or their Therefore, we can't urgency. talk about race or we can't mm. talk. Yes. I see what you're saying. And so okay, that's that what I mean sense. is like w- what I don't want is for my discomfort to in any way inhibit anyone else from having a conversation that I actually believe we should be having. Otherwise, I wouldn't have all this recording gear in Minnesota mm-hmm. right now. Sure. You know what I'm saying? So, sure. That yeah. make, okay, that makes sense. But I do want to own that like mm-hmm. I'll probably be pretty squirmy. <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay, but can I say that it actually belongs? Yeah. Because right. here's the thing that I recognize is if we don't notice where we're at, and we keep putting up these veneers of who we want to be, mm. we'll never get to the core element of beginning to heal. Mm. Because I actually believe we heal from what is actually wounded, not from what we want to yes. be our truth. Woo, girl. Mm. Yeah. Say that again. I think we actually heal from the places that we're actually wounded when we quit trying to heal from the place where we think we want to be. I really Mm. love that, Becky. And so here's one of the things I hear you saying, Luke, and I really appreciate you saying this because I think you're actually speaking for a lot of people. A lot of people watch things that are sexually explicit on TV. I mean, if you have a TV, you have sexual explicit. Is that, I don't know if that's a word. Explicity. That's a word, but I can't spell it. Okay, yeah, okay. Anyway, but you have that coming into your home. Mm -hmm. If you have a phone, you have that access. If you have access to Instagram, you have that. So we can see things and we can become desensitized and think we're actually progressively sensitized to them and aware. Mm. And yet, if we haven't actually engaged in the conversations, set in the tension, we actually aren't. And so we can think we're progressive in that area just because of what we see. But what we see is, and this is one of my biggest beefs about, I hope we're going to do an episode on just sensuality, because the reality is most of us make love or may have sex and we use our eyesight and our eyesight shuts down and creates, um, we don't hear as much, we're not tasting, we're not feeling as much. And so therefore, if we're just using our eyes as an indicator of how sexually aware we are, we're actually cutting off most of our body's sensations. So as sensuous human beings, we have five senses. Our sight isn't our determiner of our depth of language capacity. So I want your discomfort here because it's a reminder to me to be gentle and kind as I'm going through this. But it's also a reminder to me, as my husband often says to me, he says, Becky, you forget how you got to the place that you're at oftentimes Mm. because you feel such freedom and you need to remember and not leave people wounded alongside the road. I think that's true because part of what my experience, and and I want us to get into the actual content. But part of my experience with you has been when I've heard you speak, I think like, man, I would love to be that free, but there's no way I could ever get there because I am so far from being able to talk as comfortably as you do. And as you're probably about to, and will hopefully for the remainder of Mm -hmm. this series, you know, but it just seems like such an impossibly long journey, especially at 40 years old. I'm like, oh, there's just no time Mm -hmm. for me to ever Mm -hmm. sort of reach that Mm -hmm. place, which you would think that that would mean the logic is, but I'll, I'll see how far I can go, but it's not. 
in my mind, it's like, I can't engage in this conversation because I'm never going to get there. So give up. Yeah. So like, mm. I'll just stay where I am, you know, yeah. but I'm trying to not do that. Mm-hmm. So I'm ready ish. Ready ish. I'm ready ish. That's the that. title of this episode, right? Ready ish. Ready ish. Kind of, kind of. One of the reasons why I feel like the history of the Argenitalia is so important is because I think there are subversive ways in which there are underlying streams uh, that we're all drinking from and we don't actually, like the roots of our sexuality are gathering up these tap waters down below and bringing them up and we don't even realize it. Mm. And some of that comes from the element of, and here I'm just going to use real terms, but the reality is our genitals are actually more similar than they are different in their beginning. So in the beginning, we have a geni- our genitalia actually has more similarity. And then in the womb, as we get a testosterone wash over it, what ends up happening is that's where the distinction or they start to take different pathways. So like then it will become a penis versus a clitoris because the penis and the clitoris are actually very similar in their response. The clitoris is about an eighth of the size of a penis but it also does where blood flow comes in, comes into that and it fills up and it becomes hard like a little penis. In fact, it's called a mini penis and it sits tucked up under the vulva in the, what we'll call the labia area. It's a, a whole region. So women have a region, whereas men have this protruding part of their genitalia, their penis that feels like it's powerful and dominant and it's out there. Mm. And the reality is, is women have that same power-packed element. In fact, the clitoris has more nerve endings than the penis does. Hmm. But it's tucked up inside because it's closer. All of the woman's genitalia is actually closer to where they can grow a child. So their resources are more interior, whereas for a man, the genitalia is more exterior. Mm-hmm. And so they are different, but they hold similarities. So... You still with me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying not to ask questions yet. You can ask. Well, so the history piece. Why the history of genitalia? What is that? Okay, because one of the things is, and this is one of those things, those streams that I think we're drinking from, we don't even realize. So what feels more powerful, something you can see or something that's hidden? Something you can see. Right? You can see. So the reality is for years and years in anatomy, they used to believe that women had nothing to do with a baby other than being a house the man carried the seed and the seed was life. Hmm. That's hard to believe, but that is a construct that came into being. And that's what, because there was physical evidence from an ejaculation that a man has, they looked at that under a microscope and they saw the seeds and it's like, oh my gosh, this is life. This is life. Sperm is life. And so the element of that is it's something we could physically see, but what we couldn't see is the fallopian tubes and the ovaries that were actually releasing eggs that were connecting with the sperm and then implanting in the uterus and ultimately creating life. It was a joint effort. And so when we can see something, we begin to name it, which I want to say is part of our very patriarchal society. Therefore, we tend to create the things that we can see and have power. And that's one of the reasons why I think so often we think of strength as a male trait. Hmm. But the reality is, think about the whole element of women having babies. And is that strength? 
Mm-hmm. But we don't name it as that. We name that as nurturing mm-hmm. and, you know, protective and caring. And weak. Yeah. I and mean, honestly, that like, weak. like women need to be protected. Yeah. Right. They need to be shielded. You know, I wonder, as you're saying, like the hidden versus something that's obvious, there's a way in which, yeah, the thing that is out there is more obviously strong. But I am part of what seems to be sinister about patriarchy is there is a fear of the strength of what's hidden. And so it needs to stay hidden, you know, because if we let that hiddenness out, who knows what will happen. So in that trope, I feel like is part of this whole conversation. Oh, it has to be. But part of it is you can't see. I mean, it's like literally the clitoris for years and years people thought was just a myth. Like it was considered hysteria when a woman had an orgasm. It was considered and listed as hysteria. And the truth is, because the clitoris is a muscle, most autopsies were originally done on men's bodies, not females' bodies, because the female body was considered sacred. It was the thing that actually housed and gave birth and gave life. And so, and I think some of it has to do with the Catholic Church and Mother Mary. And I mean, I really honestly mean that that was sacred. You don't touch women. It's like, uh. and so women were not being autopsied. Wow. And what happens when you actually do an autopsy with a dead body? Oh, well, I guess it's versus, only that you do it. <laughs> versus a live body. Oh, okay, versus a live body. That's That'd be really good. torture and serial killing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And there that's is a good. big difference. There's, there is a big difference. There's a big <laughs> difference okay. between Stay murder obvious, yeah. mm-hmm. and doctoral work. Yeah. <laughs> that's not right either. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> so often. Okay. Ring it in, Becky. Yeah. Um, when they began to do autopsies on women's bodies, they couldn't find the clitoris because the clitoris is a muscle. They've, I mean, they could find the bull, but they couldn't find right. evidence because it's a muscle. And so what do muscles do when we die? They don't have oxygen anymore and they, they atrophy. atrophy. Hmm. So it was like this myth. I have a friend who went through the Mayo Clinic in the 50, no, 56, she graduated from medical school at Mayo Clinic. And she said that in her book, there was one paragraph that was about three inches big on menopause and women. And it basically what it said is men just need to help women make it through this time and medicate the women so that they don't, because it's just something that we just have to get through. And I mean, That was Mayo Clinic's medical book that it had that in the 50s. And now Mayo Clinic has a whole wing dedicated to women's studies. And that's the other thing, too. For so long, we've been studying. And this is this goes back. I'm getting back to genitalia history. We have done so much research on the man's body. And then we just transfer it over and do it by weight element for the woman's body. So we thought it was just a weight thing that men and women's bodies are the same. No, women's bodies are different. But even in that, they're different different elements given like there's three women sitting around this table and none of us are the same Mm -mm. we all have unique elements and differences and yet we all might have similar body parts but we are very different people and i think if we're talking about genitalia history the thing that's so important about that is because it shapes so much of how do our genitals determine our sexuality? No. If so, then literally sexuality is just about a physical act. That's mm. not true. And that's not true because yeah. there's a deep emotional act that actually happens. I think there's a deep spiritual act that happens. And I think that there are different ways in which we experience our genitals. I get asked this question a lot about, is there really that big a difference in penises? And the reality is, is there's 
you know, half an inch to an inch difference that can actually fluctuate. I know that they're different, but the reality is, is there are culture, cultural differences for how people even engage with their penises. And so how we view our physical genitals and what our genitals purpose is will be part of what determines how we engage or view our sexuality. So and our identity and I mean, our I think, identity. Yep. Wow. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think there's a history that some of us are actually living out and we're drinking from. We don't even, the roots are so old. We don't even know we're drinking from them. And I think one of the biggest roots is the way religion has influenced culture and culture has influenced family of origin and religion has also influenced family of origin. But I think honestly, we have culture. And I grew up, I mean, I was born in the 60s. And so there's an element of that whole free love thing. While it was absolutely freeing in so many ways, it was also a scary thing for people that were in what I would call the conservative church, because it was blowing apart everything that they knew to be true about the parameters around sex. It was just blowing it up. But yet that generation is the one that when they started coming into maturity, they're the ones that created the purity movement. Mm -hmm. So briefly, Mm -hmm. if we have folks listening and we will have folks listening who are completely unfamiliar with like, have never been in a therapeutic setting, Mm -hmm. family of origin. What do you mean when you say family of origin? It's the family that we're born into and it's the origins of where we learned how to love what our vulnerability was like, and ways in which we are going to interact with the world and with one another. So it's what feels normal to us. So like if somebody grew up in a family of origin that it was just common that dad hit mom, that's actually a natural part of functioning. I mean, there's so many different elements to that, but our family of origin are the unspoken things that get imprinted into us very early on because it actually happens before we have language how we're cared for as children. There's so much that our body remembers that we don't have language for. And everyone has family of origin. Everybody. I just think it's important for folks who just maybe have not been in therapy or, mm-hmm. or heard that language to recognize that like this is a thing that it's one, it's common language. Two, it applies to everyone. And three, it applies differently to everyone. So I think about like my older brother and I growing up in exactly the same house probably have very different family of origin yeah. things. Yes. And I just think that's just a thing I want to make sure we note. Right. For folks who maybe. Can I share a metaphor to understand it? Like I look at it like your social system, your family system is like the snow globe in which you are living. And you have no idea that the snow globe is not the whole world. It's just, you know, and then there comes a moment or moments where you realize, oh, like there's an entire world out there. There aren't just seven plastic uh, trees in the Mm -hmm. world. And it doesn't snow every day, actually, in real life. But it's normal. It, mm-hmm. Like whatever's happening in your snow globe is the normal thing that happens everywhere. You universalize what your particular thing is. And you keep re-experiencing it. Right. Until you can differentiate right. from it. Simple story. When I, I My mom gave me this pan. It was a black and white pan, enamel. It was just this really cool dish that she always used to make ham in. And when I got married, she gave it to me. It was like kind of this really cool thing. And so the first time I made a ham in it, I cut the two ends off and I threw them away. And like about the third or fourth time I did that, my husband asked me, why do you cut the ends of the ham off and throw it away? And I was like, I don't know. My mom always did it. My mom, I don't know. And so I called my mom and I asked her, I said, mom, I said, why do you cut the ends off the ham? I'm realizing I'm just throwing away good meat. And she goes, oh, because it's the only thing way it would fit in the pan. See, mm. that's a great story. And it was like, oh, I don't have to cut 
the ends of the ham off anymore. You know, I can actually be present to what actually fits in the... So, I mean, I think there's a lot... Of, and that's where I'm saying that's something that was just imprinted on me. I had but no idea why did it. jumped to the conclusion that the ends of the meat are bad. Right. Well, that's what I told... I right. tried to make all 100%. kinds of things. I told meat. him. I told him yeah. all kinds of things. Oh, I'm, yeah. this isn't real meat. Yeah. Can you see these lines on here? Where the, yeah. Well, I'm not sure about ham, but I mean, but you can see these lines on here. That's not actually good for us. But we aren't like, supposed to eat it. interpreting... Yeah. Yes. Something. Yes. And I'm trying Without to protect something yeah. that I don't even understand why I'm trying to protect it because I've Such always done it. My dad, you know, was Muslim and our neighbor used to be this like gorgeous blonde woman and she would mow the lawn in a red bikini, a string <laughs> bikini. And I grew up in Houston. And I remember when she started doing that, if he would walk outside and she was mowing, he would immediately like walk in the house, totally flustered, upset about how inappropriate it was you know, and, and just be like, she should not be outside in this thing. And, you know, we live in America and we live, you know, in the U.S. and we live in Texas and it's hot. And that's, that's a wants, way to get she a She wants to work on her tan. Yeah. And, you know, what that communicated to me as a child is that red bikinis were bad yes. and that red bikinis were scandalous. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I was like, oh, man, I mean, I can never – if I wear that, I'm, I'm a slut. Mm-hmm. But, like, none of those things were said. No. You know? No, mm-mm. but so, they're imprints. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. if you think about pressing down into bread dough, and it's an imprint mm-hmm. that we carry with us and it gets baked into us. Wow. And we don't even know it's there. Yeah. So I want to say that very early on for all of us, we have a genitalia history relationship with our body. The thing that we now know because of the MRI and because of ultrasounds and things like that, children in the womb begin a relationship with their genitals. And there's an element of, we used, we used to think it was just alcohol and cigarette nicotine that crossed over the barrier. What we know is emotions actually cross yeah. over. Cortisol. Babies will respond to stress in the womb. They actually respond to that. And so because the genital region is the part where we actually experience stress first, to find comfort and to touch and to be able to feel that pleasure in a way, it can silence some of and help release some of that stress, which is very early on, you watch a little boy come into a new room and it's very, I'm saying boys because of the fact that their genitals are exposed and they're out. A lot of times boys will start playing with their penises. But I also have watched major league baseball players going up to bat. There's two outs and they start adjusting Mm. themselves. Now, because it's exterior, it's something they can feel in an exterior way. Whereas little girls, a lot of times will say, mommy, I have a tummy ache. I have stomach ache all the time. Mm. Yeah. And, but part of it is because stress comes as a way, and this is my own wondering. I'm just, I Mm -hmm. keep wondering about this is, is it biologically created that way because it's close to our expelling region? Wow. I wonder, because if you think about that region of the body is the part that lets go of excess. Mm. So take me back a little bit on that. You said that we experience stress first in the genital area. area. What do you mean by that? And like, what are you talking about? Or is it? That when we feel stress, we try to comfort ourselves by touching our genitals. I want to say both and. Okay. Okay. Our first experience with stress, where stress comes at the body. And if you think about your core region, 
it enters through our genital region, I want to say, in that area. That's where we first experience it. It's like somebody says something really hard to you and you feel like you've been hit in the yeah, gut. Yeah. Mm. You know what I mean? Ooh. Like, like people will have physical, visceral, mm-hmm. Ugh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. we shoulders, feel like it's shoulders our core yeah. element. It's, yeah, we, and we yeah. move into this protective mode. And so what happens, what we know is if stress enters the body and has an interaction, my question, and this is a question, really is, does it enter there because it's the easiest place and the closest access for it to be able to have movement through our body? Because if you look at when we experience large emotions, and I cover up the word E on emotion, it's motion. So the largest activity of an emotion is to have motion to move through us. And stress, worry, anxiety, so often people will say they feel it in their gut. And that's one of the things that we know is when we start to feel stress, we quit breathing deeply and we breathe and we're only accessing our emergency lung capacity, which keeps us in a hypervigilant state. So I think for children where we see this so often, if we're looking at children, children experience and have no trouble going to be able to try and comfort themselves. They'll put their hands down their pants. They'll, I want to say the story that you shared about just experiencing something over the arm, the arm of, of the, the couch, the arm of the couch, yeah. you were experiencing something that you didn't have language for. Yeah. And so as it was coming in, it was touching something. I want to think that was connected to desire and your capacity yeah. to see beauty. And it felt good. And it felt good. Yeah. But you immediately didn't want to share that. I felt shame. You felt shame. But you still love Tom Selleck to this day. God yeah. bless him. That's, I mean, Long who way. doesn't? I, I mean, I, I want to share a similar story, actually. Okay. So growing up, I don't remember when I started, but I started, really, it was masturbating, but way before there could be any ejaculation. Mm-hmm. And it would, when I was little, I remember I would like lay down on the ground, stomach down, and touch myself. But it would be in the open, you know, but with a blanket covering myself. And then... Mm-hmm. I must have realized that you don't somehow right. you don't do that in public. But then, so I would go into my room, and it would feel good, even mm-hmm. though no ejaculation. But then I would picture this is so bizarre that once I was done, once I was done, I would picture a video camera videoing me, and God or someone was watching. But it was only on when I wasn't doing it. So like, mm, okay. okay, he's okay. He's not doing it. He's fine. So I stuttered as a kid big time mm-hmm. and super weird detail. But I, my parents told me, I don't remember this, but I wore a super tight belt. Like mm. so much so. so cinched it in. So much so that my parents took me to the doctor and said yeah. like, is it okay that Stevie is wearing such a tight belt? And he said, yeah, it's okay. But I was clearly like stuttering. Self-soothing, tight mm-hmm. belt. I was trying to compensate for some anxiety mm-hmm. or fear or yeah. something. I was trying really hard to work something out. Yeah. And that started from before I was even aware, mm-hmm. you know. Were you going to say something? No, I was, okay. I was like, I, after, after that sofa experience, I never touched myself down there again. Mm-hmm. And I didn't masturbate until the first day of the end of my marriage. Mm. Wow. But I had a stomach ache mm-hmm. for so many years as a child, enough to the point where my mom took me to the doctor and I mm-hmm. drank cherry barium and they were like, well, she's inflamed, but we don't know why. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying 
I should have been masturbating as a kid and then I wouldn't have had a stomachache. I mean, I don't know. But like I was experiencing a lot of stress and no release. No release and actually mm-hmm. no medical evidence that there was anything wrong, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. should give us a clue right away that there's something emotional going on. That's right. As a child, I moved every two to three years. Mm-hmm. And so I would have to restart and begin again. And one of the things that as I've gone back and I've looked in my history, one of the things I realized is I had something physically that showed up every time we moved something physically. And, and it was real. And it was real. For me, it was real. But it was also like one of the things when we moved from the small town in Kansas, we moved into this small, lovely little town that, I mean, I have great memories from. But I began at that point holding in my bowel movements. In doing that, what it actually does is it creates a sensation of almost of pleasure mm-hmm. on your body because you're tightening that area down there. But it was giving me a release of some of the stress as I'm looking at this now as an adult. But what it wasn't doing is it wasn't allowing my body to let go of some of the pain I was because I was becoming just compounded, like mm-hmm. constipated, where then it created this whole other dynamic that literally I got to the point where my anus muscle had contracted and it didn't work Hmm. because I wanted control over something and Mm -hmm. I had no control over anything. Mm -hmm. I was continually uprooted Mm -hmm. and dropped Mm -hmm. in a new place and had to learn how to navigate. And I'm not saying that because like my parents meant to put me through all that trauma, but the reality is, is they didn't know what to do with that. And my body was talking to me and I didn't have a language to go with it. And that I think is why we all have a relationship with our genitalia that we all have a history. So what's actually informed us, like I wasn't allowed to use real language around my genitalia. In fact, we were talking last night, the song you sing as a kid, head and shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes, that. And we skip the whole region of our body between our chest bone and down to our pubic area. And so we're taught, even in that simple children's song, I don't think they're trying to keep us away, but it's like we don't have it's subconscious. Language. It's subconscious. Yeah. I'm saying that's something that those are the parts when we talk to little kids about, where are your eyes? Where are your nose? The closest we get is, we, where's your belly button? And I think what has happened is we've created a tension of not being able to have conversation that are natural moments, natural little nuggets. And that's some of what you're saying that your dad did in mm-hmm. as he talked to you, Steve. He gave you a an age-appropriate conversation. And I often think, you know, if I ever wrote another book, I think what I'd write is 100 one-minute sex talks. Because children can hear one minute. They don't hear the one 100-minute sex talk. They don't hear that. Yeah, so don't do one big sex talk. Don't do one big sex talk. Talk about sex with your children all the way along. And I have a this great story of when my one of my godsons was in the hospital. He was born, and I came in, and I was having this sweet little moment with him, just holding him. And all of a sudden, I heard, you know, that he, I mean, you can hear, he's just filled his pants, you know. And his mom turned to me, and she says, okay. Start your sex education with him now. And I took him over and I changed his diaper and I started wiping him down and cleaning him and talking to him about how beautiful his body was and all of that. And I'm just right in his face and we're having this really intimate moment and then right in your face, <laughs> right in my face. And to this day, that little boy who is now 12, I always, he's, he's just grown up too fast, but he'll come up to me and he'll say, Tell me the story about when you started talking to me about my body. Uh-huh. And it's like, we can have those. Those are, I mean, it's just this intimate, sweet little thing that he and I have. And we keep retelling the story to him 
about the goodness of what that is. And then it has a little, you know, I got sprayed in the face. But mm-hmm. the reality is, is that's a natural part. See, I think we can take and create natural commentary around the genitals in ways that create curiosity and comfort and also can be fun versus you don't touch that. Oh, you don't put your hand there. What is your hand doing down there? You know, come on, you can't do that. And one mom said to me that one of the things she saw when they had just changed houses and she says she was noticing her son was constantly hands down his pants and she took him into his new room and she said, can you tell me what you like about this new room? And can you tell me what is from your old room? So he named everything that was from his old room. And what is it about this room that is different than your other room? And he named all that. And then she says, why don't, if you need to touch yourself and you need to comfort yourself, so she named it for him, why don't you come in your room here and you can remind yourself that you're going to get used to this new place and that the old place, you have parts of the old that have come here, but this is your new home and you can help your body to get comfortable here. Wow. That was a mom who was attuned to something Mm -hmm. was going on with their son. She talked to him about his body. She related it and she gave him space to actually work that out. And she says, you know what was interesting is I really didn't see him do it anymore. Around that did it for a few days, and then it was just like he had found his comfort place. And so I think that genitalia history is so important because we have to recognize where did we come from? How did I get some of these things? What was imprinted on me, and what do I actually, like, what is mine? And then where are we right now, and where do we want to go? It's interesting. I've never thought about genitalia. I mean, obviously there are the parts of our body that we share in intimate relationships and safe spaces because it's a vulnerable exposure. Mm -hmm. And I've never connected the idea that we go to those places for comfort, but it makes so much sense that the place where we feel most vulnerable is also the place we feel the most seen. Mm -hmm. And so like when you're with like a safe partner, part of the reason why being naked together feels so good is because you're really safe and seen in all mm-hmm. of your parts, like not just your genitalia, mm-hmm. but all of you. So I've never thought about how kids or even grownups run to their genitalia for comfort mm-hmm. in a non-sinister consumptive way, like in mm-hmm. a healing, want to feel intimate, want to feel seen. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's just so fascinating. I'm just mm-hmm. sitting here having a revelation. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I mean, mm-hmm. that's wild. Mm-hmm. Don't apologize for having a revelation. Yeah. Those are awesome moments. No, but like I just have yeah. never... That is so helpful. Mm-hmm. How many times have I overheard people say like, oh, that's dirty. Don't touch that. Oh, well, we do that when children are wiping themselves. That's mm-hmm. right. So what we mm-hmm. do is we indoctrinate people into the element of that region is dirty versus we need to teach them about elimination. This, your body is letting go of everything it doesn't need. But people, and because it doesn't need it, there may be some germs attached to it. So right. we need to be careful how we care Because that, that part is sacred. Yes. But like, I just think that, wow, like. That's where people find comfort. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So yeah. we do elimination and we find comfort in like the we same sh- region. We shed the things we don't mm-hmm. need. We shed, yeah. And we also like receive the things we do need. Mm-hmm. That's wild. <laughs> Man. Uh. You know, I do think 
that sex in and of itself, and this is part of why, I mean, we were supposed to start talking about our second pillar is, you know, sex is good and things like that. But sex has a comfort capacity to it that is really huge. My dad died 13 years ago, 14 years ago, and I went through so much to build a really good relationship with him. And I love my dad. And I spent the last week of his life with him by his bed, like literally Mm. sleeping with my head right next to him with his hand right on my head. And I mean, Mm. I was, it was just the most intimate, beautiful, lovely. I was, I got to be there during the night with him and it was so sacred and so holy, but I was so consumed by grief when he died. And the night they removed his body, I stayed with my mom so she didn't have to be alone. And we had people coming in the next day. And the next day I got home, I remember it was about one o'clock and it was like this moment I drive my car back to my house and I walk in my door. And the last time I'd been in my house was a week ago and my dad was alive. And I was, um, I didn't know I would be coming back in different. And I walked through the door and I looked at my husband and I said, I need you to make love to me because right now, I'm swimming in grief. Yeah. And I need to know that this won't drown me. Yeah. And I need to feel something else. And it was yeah. like literally making love. We wept through it. Mm. We wept through mm. it. And it doesn't sound like it. It wasn't sexy. It wasn't. Um, but it was like our bodies needed to remember comfort. Mm-hmm. And we needed to remember care. And we needed to remember the goodness of pleasure and of each other in the midst of our grief. And I, I, to this day, feel like that was the thing that helped me, (gasps) okay, I can breathe again and Mm. I can now do the things that I have to do and preparing Mm. for this. I can, but it was like, he was safe. I could trust him. And we held both our grief and let our bodies do part of how I think they were created was to literally come together. Take comfort in each other. Comfort one another. It's beautiful. It is. Yeah. It's a lot of safety. Oh, it's a lot of safety. It's yeah. a lot of safety. But it's also the history that we have with our genitalia doesn't necessarily mean our future. We can write the future. We can't rewrite history. Mm. So we have to recognize the history we have if we want to create something that holds tove for the future of what we can create. And I think we can create good. And that's why I say one of my pillars is sex is actually good. Yeah. Sex is good. When I think about trauma victims or people mm-hmm. who've experienced pain in, in their genitalia, and that's supposed to be a source of comfort. And you've said a lot to me that, you know, sex can be really, is it damaging or? Sex can create trauma and it can heal trauma. That's right. And so like, I just, hmm, this is just making me think so differently about even the way I've thought about my own genitalia in the sense of like, it's just a place for somebody else to have pleasure or for me to have pleasure. But I haven't thought about comfort. I don't know Mm -hmm. why this is like really shifting something in my body. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's really crazy. (laughs) Like that's really wild. Like That's why we have to talk about it. Yeah, it's so helpful because like, I think that like, even when we talk about self-pleasuring or masturbation, like I would describe to my girlfriends after my divorce, like it's just like an itch I have to scratch. Mm-hmm. It's like I have a bug bite and I got to scratch it. You know what I mean? I just like go do it and I get done and it's over. And sometimes I feel sad because it's a lot more fun with a partner than by yourself. And and then I learned I had to re-engage with my own body. And what I think what I was chasing was comfort. Yeah. 
but I just described it as just like, it's just this thing I have to do. And instead of like acknowledging that my body's expressing the need for comfort, like, and I get to offer that to myself, like, that's so much more helpful. Like even in looking at my history with a lens for the future, almost like that just helps me recategorize it in a way that's really a lot more about healing language and about communing with myself than it is about like just this thing that has to be done. Mm -hmm. And I think we've separated sex from the body. We've separated sex from comfort. Mm. We've made it just about a sex act. Mm -hmm. And it's so much more layered than that. I just, this is, this is exactly why I came here. This episode of Fun Parts was produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork was designed by the very talented Alan Lusink. All the music you heard in this episode was composed, produced, and licensed by the fine folks at blue.sessions.com. Check out our website at funpartspodcast.com and be sure to follow us on social media at funpartspodcast. Lastly, if you want access to bonus and behind-the-scenes content from this and other Milieu Media Group shows, join our neighborhood at the Patreon link in the show notes. And now, here's a scene from the next episode of Fun Parts. I mean, that was part of the threat to me as a high school kid was always like, well, just know that if you have sex, you're going to have to tell your wife about this someday. You're going to have to tell her all that you've done. And it was that fear of like, well, I know she will be the person I love most in the world and I would never want to hurt her with my actions now. But for that to be a device that's meant to create fear for the sole purpose of abstinence for abstinence's sake, that is damage. That is damaging. Mm -hmm.